fucking metronome man. Fucking metronome. Welcome to the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome with Wendy Bowlesby and Melissa Kirscher. Welcome to the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome podcast. Uh, we are your hosts, Wendy Bowlesby and Melissa Kirscher. Hello. And we're going to talk about movies and who knows what else, but we'll probably also mention wine. <laughs> yes, I, I would like to start off this podcast by saying that our tonight's white... <laughs> Tonight's wine pairing is Ravenswood Cabernet Sauvignon Venters Blend, California, 2011. Hmm. Now, if you didn't know, we actually re- record two podcasts a night, so we get together. Woo! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we get, I saved it. <laughs> we get together every other week and we record two podcasts in an evening. So, if you're keeping track, that means that. Earlier, we drank an entire bottle of Malbec, and now we're going to finish off a Cab So. Which means the even number episodes are drunker. (laughs) I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It's like the Star Trek even number episodes. So that explains Mm. Star Trek V. It's because they were all drunk. Oh, but but the thing is, Star Trek Three wasn't that bad, and I actually really like my favorite. Well, wait a second, my favorite Star Trek movie, honestly, seriously, is Star Trek: The Motionless Picture. Are you what? I my favorite Star Trek film is the first Star Trek movie. How can you put that above Wrath of Khan? Wrath of Khan is absolutely delicious. I will give it that. Wrath of Khan actually has, you know, things happening. I realize that. But Star Trek The Motionless Picture is the one Star Trek movie that feels like hard sci-fi. It feels like it has scope. And I realize that a lot of Star Trek is more about the interrelationships of the characters. But for me, the first movie is the one that feels like the universe is huge. Okay, so you like Motionless Picture because it's actually taking Star Trek and turning it into a movie. Yes, it's very cinematic. Or rather, I would like to preface this with saying that the director's cut is far better than the original cut. The original cut is, yeah. Yeah, has, yeah. has a lot of limitations. The director's cut is really remarkable. It has that gravitas. Okay, except I like... Wrath of Khan because it captures what made the series so engaging. I I'll also that. things happen. See, I've never been a Star Trek person either. Oh, but, but oh, I know, I know, I know. I know. Uh-huh. I know. I speak fluent Star Trek, but I've never had a real great engagement with Star Trek. I will admit, 
Bill uh, Shatner was a fucking sexy beast when he was eh, younger. I'm not big on... I'm big on Bill Shatner as, like, a um, Ben Folds collaborator. I kind of like his music <laughs> career. <laughs> okay. okay, Wendy just did a spit take. <laughs> I made Wendy do a spit take. That's a waste of wine, y'all. <laughs> This is good uh, wine. I like it. It is. I like this one. Okay. Um, but but no, how can you deny that Bill Shatner was a sexy beast when he was younger in the original I series? was never into young Bill Shatner. He had lips, man. He had gorgeous yeah. lips. And some, you know, nice other things going on. I can on. understand Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. No, Leonard Nimoy is also good. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to admire DeForest Kelly's eye makeup. Damn straight. It takes a real man to rock blue eyeshadow. Mm-hmm. Even number episode... <laughs> but I love you listeners, all three of you. I know at least four people who will at least hang with us this far. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to note that both of us are snorting. And let's see if you can tell which snort is which. <laughs> Do you remember the TV Guide? I love TV Guide. We don't well, we had, like, a local version of TV Guide that I loved even more. But TV Guide was good. TV Guide. It was a magazine that showed up every week and told you what was on that week because... Because we had no internet. We didn't have internet. You had no way of knowing. We, we, had, we had clubs, and we had just discovered fire. And we had the TV Guide. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, <laughs> Ugh. Subscribe to TV Guide. Soap is on. Ugh. <laughs> So my mom would look through the I, I TV would, guide. I would like to note that I've seen every single episode of Soap. You're amazing. I know. <laughs> Tonight's podcast is actually about, we decided that we would talk about specific people who inhabit our niche genres. Mm. So, for example, Melissa is still unsure who she's going to talk about. Yes, I'm going to make this shit up as I go along. But my niche, as we know, is musicals, and while we all know the top names in the musical genre, Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, mm-hmm. Liza Minnelli, Bob Fosse, what I want to talk to you tonight is Howard Keel, because Howard Keel does not get enough love for how sexy that man was. <laughs> and he is actually someone that when he shows up in a film, I'm like, oh, look, it's Howard Keel, I love him. You have to understand. Okay, we're launching into it now. Just go with yeah. me. All right. Run into it. Howard Keel. When I was a child, a lot of my movie-going experience, a lot of what made me turn into a movie lover is I credit my mom. My mother, when I was a child, would look through the TV guide and she would find random things and say, hey, kids, this is on. To which my brothers and I would turn in her and go, uh? And she'd say, this is unacceptable that you don't know what it is, therefore you will watch it. Sometimes even, I don't care, it's a school night, you will stay up late and you will watch it, which is how I first watched Arsenic and Old Lace. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's how I saw The Adventures of Robin Hood. That's how I came to love Errol Flynn. My glass is broken. Okay, your glass is broken. We need to fix this. Glug, glug, glug. Oh, shit! Oh, my God! Oh, the the wine has gone on the computer. There's that. I can see wine underneath the keys of my keyboard. Here, if I sort of put that in there, will it soak it up? Probably. Oh, that's pretty successful. Oh, that's... Oh, 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 I like that. Oh, that's kind of... 
almost okay, disturbing. we're doing science now. Yeah, we're we're using capillary action to our um, advantage. advantage. Yeah. Yes. Oh, oh, oh! Can I get or this? Cap capillary, if you were in Britain. Oh, I want to be British. Ooh, look at that capillary action. Look oh, at this shit wow. going on. I didn't realize I'd spilled that much wine on my computer. I'd like to note that this thing is still recording. Is it? Wait, wait, is it? Yeah, it is. Look. What? Look, oh my god! Recording. So Howard Keel, yes, tell me about Howard Keel, Wendy. Howard Keel was the king of the golden age of MGM musicals. Can you pull up his IMDb page? I, I totally can. Because my computer is still working despite spilling wine on it. Where's Howard Keel? So Howard He's right Keel here. I pulled him up for you. Starred in five of the biggest movie musicals that people that are from the golden age of the movie musical. We had him as the lead in Kiss Me Kate, mm -hmm. in Showboat, in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Annie Get Your Gun, and do 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 Kiss Kismet. Kismet. Oh, Kismet. I love that one. And he was, how did the IMD, I'm going to, I'm going to read you what IMDB says about him because I love it so much. He was the Errol Flynn and Clark Gable of Golden Age movie musicals back in the 50s. With a barrel-chested swagger and cocky, confident air, not to mention his lusty handsomeness and obvious athleticism, six-foot-four, brawny baritone Howard Keel had MGM's loveliest songbirds swooning helplessly for over a decade. And I'm one of them. That's a that's a career, man. That is a career. He was also in Dallas, and he's had some actual acting roles that didn't involve singing. But he had this operatic baritone. And he had, as they say, this cocky swagger that made him so enjoyable and that really worked for him. So you have him consistently playing men who are so full of themselves and yet discover that they need to back off and let the woman take the lead. And he does mm -hmm. it really well. So for as much as he plays the macho kind of asshole in these movie musicals, he also plays the man who recognizes that he needs a woman and that women have something that he doesn't understand <laughs> and that he needs to, I don't know, shut the fuck up and sit down. <laughs> Howard Keel. I saw him first in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, mm -hmm. where he's this woodsy outdoorsman. Now, the, the reason that you watch Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is actually for the dancing done by Russ Tamblin and his compatriot, Tommy Rawl. So you watch Seven Brides for, for Seven Brothers for the barn dance, mm -hmm. right? That's really why you watch it. And maybe for I'm a Lonesome Polecat, which is the boys out in the snow swinging their axes and being manly and kind of hot. Mm, right? Axes. Because the plot is kind of shit. <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> well, it is. It, it really, really is. It really is. And it's about men stealing women and women getting into some sort of Stockholm Syndrome with their captors. <laughs> it, it's really unfortunate. Now, that said, I accept it because... I grew up with it and different time periods and even as a feminist, oh well, shrug my shoulders because it's got Howard Keel being six foot four and incredibly macho mm. and kind of endearing as he slowly woos Jane Powell. And he woos her 
And then she's all like, you don't know what the hell you're doing. And that was a fucking mistake. And you're an asshole. And he's like, fuck you. I'm not an asshole. I'm going to go pout over here in this shack for the whole winter. (laughs) And Jane Powell's like, you go over there and you think about what you've done. I mean, seriously, she's totally momming him. And he goes away. And then when he comes back, he's like, yeah, you're you're kind of right. Yeah. Okay. I like you. And it's it's sweet. So that was the first movie I saw Howard Keel in. And what I mostly remembered was how tall he was. Because <laughs> Jane Powell is like my size. She's this little itty bitty thing. And they got paired up for two or three films together because she it was both of them in Kismet as well. And she's super tiny and he's super tall. And it's sort of sexy because <laughs> he like grabs her and you're just like look at those long well. hello you're so big and dominant stop i think he was actually gay wow he, he might have been actually gay i don't know it doesn't matter because he had a baritone to die for and legs that went all the way up to the ceiling <laughs> and the second film i saw him in was showboat <laughs> he did <laughs> Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, but you need to seek out Mr. Howard Keel. So the next film I saw him in was Showboat, where he's a total bad boy and again, kind of an asshole. He kind of specialized in the lovable asshole, now that I Mm. think about it. And that's sort of a trope of the 50s musical, which is unfortunate. Well, it was, I I think that may have come into the, it was trying to play both sides of the wholesome musical thing and the bad boy thing that was happening in in the rest of cinema. Well, and also in the 50s, because while we all know that in the 60s we had the counterculture and the feminist thing uprising, in the 50s there was this recognition that even though women were the homemakers, women held power Mm -hmm. that men weren't entirely comfortable with. And there is that acknowledgement of it in the 50s films, and especially in the 50s musicals. So in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, he acknowledges that this woman that he has married has power over his entire homestead and mm-hmm. what is going on in his life. And it, whatever she, say, she says goes. And in Showboat, you have a man who's a gambler, and he, he marries her, and then he wastes all the money, and then he deserts her. And she ends up having his baby, but it's not a bastard because they were married. And then she goes back to her family and they're on the showboat. And then he's like, Oh look, my family's on the showboat and I should have just stayed there with them. And so he lowers his standards of what he thought he wanted. And he joins them on the showboat and she takes him back. I don't like showboat. In seventh grade in middle school, there was some day where they didn't have anything to do with us to teach us anything. So they rounded us all up and put us in the auditorium and showed us showboat Mm -hmm. all 50,000 hours of it. (laughs) And me and my friends for the next, no, for the rest of the school year would make fun of that musical and would just drag our feet between classes singing. Old man river. river. No, river. River. River with a B. River. River. Oh, man. River. Yeah, because that was the black dialect, apparently. And the second... That was... No. No, really, when it's... It is written that way in the sheet music. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I know. River. Ol, Ol, O-L, apostrophe, man, 
ribber. Like, I'm going to tickle your ribs. See, I didn't know that. And then that, that just makes me unhappy. Well, welcome to the 50s, y'all. Fuck the 50s. Okay, Howard Keel later mm -hmm. in life was on like Dallas and other things, yes, whatever. Yes. But I want to continue and I want to finish up with the finishing trifecta. He was, it was a quin, quinfecta? Quinfecta. Okay, so we already talked about Seven Brides for Seven Brothers mm -hmm. and Showboat. These are not in chronological order. I want to make that clear. These are the order I saw them. Then I saw him in Kiss Me, Kate. <laughs> number one, I was older. I was just entering puberty. And number two, he was wearing tights that were vertical stripes, which made his legs look Ooh. even longer. Ooh. And this doublet that ended well before the crotchal region. <laughs> and he had a really amazing ass. He wasn't a dancer by mm. any means. So mm. it's not like Gene Kelly turning and flexing for the camera. Gene Kelly had the best ass ever in oh. Hollywood history. Oh my God. Seriously. And he knew it and he utilized it very appropriately. Mm. But Howard Keel in that movie struts around on these legs and he lounges against door frames and he speaks in his baritone. And when he sang, where is the life that late I led in Kiss Me Kate? That was the moment I entered puberty. That was the moment that I experienced <laughs> lust for the first time. Oh, Seriously. Lovely. He's a handsome devil. He's got this operatic baritone and these long legs are draping around various pieces of set furnishings and and I wasn't sure what those legs would do but I knew that I wanted to kind of use them and climb them and sort of wrap around them in some way and Kiss Me Kate is one of my favorite musicals ever it's right up there with Guys and Dolls because it takes... I did not realize that Guys and Dolls was one of your... Guys and Dolls is my favorite musical ever. Not the yeah. movie version. Not the movie version. I want no, to make I, that clear. I can understand that. Because but. the movie version is is yeah. troubled by the casting. Yeah. But the, the actual script for the stage musical is written by um, Damon Runyon and his brilliant short stories about life in Times Square in New York mm -hmm. is what inspired guys and dolls and so a lot of the pattern the dialogue is Damon Runyon-esque and then you have this brilliant score by Frank Lesser right mm -hmm. so I love guys and dolls yes but next to it is Kiss Me Kate which is Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew yes one of my absolute favorite Shakespearean plays with a brilliant score and it's got all of the sassy bickering and fighting of a couple that hates each other but really loves each other. So I love Kiss Me, Kate. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Jane Powell's voice. She's a little mm. bit throatier than I like, a little bit more operatic than I like. But she does a great job in this. And, of course, Kiss Me, Kate, even though it's got that song about I am ashamed that women are so simple and I kneel to you and I put my hand under your foot... Which seems like it's this whole cowering before men thing. The way it's presented in the film, it's subtle, but it's there, is I'm telling you what you need to hear for the public, but you and I both know that the fact that I'm saying this in public means that I respect you, and this is the foundation for our relationship. So there's, ah, it, 
it's very lovely and it's very feminist, even though it's not. Mm-hmm. You have to see beyond the trappings to see the true feminist underpinnings. And when Howard Keel is watching her sing this song in the movie, and then he takes this giant step forward thanks to his legs that he, <laughs> he takes this step forward and he's like oh Kate and he he goes to kiss her I'm like ah swoon yes so Howard Keel he's my favorite okay he's totally my favorite he was also in let's see we did one two three Kismet which has a great score by Borodine mm-hmm. it's based on Borodine's operas and so you should watch it. It's kind of a mess plot-wise, eh, but it does have um, Not Since Nineveh, which is a great song not sung by him. But he sings brilliant stuff in it, and it's got one of the best ballads ever, and This Is My Beloved. He sings part of that, but not really. <sighs> Whatever. But he is, again, very tall and handsome in that film. And then the last film I saw him in, which is by no means... I think chronologically, the first film he did was Annie Get Your Gun. Again, problematic, a woman downplaying her abilities in order to reassure Mm -hmm. her man that Mm -hmm. he shouldn't be threatened by her. Really problematic. But it's got Betty Hutton, and she's hilarious. Yes. Also on the Annie Get Your Gun DVD extras, something very disturbing. I feel bad for enjoying it. It's It's a sad sort of schadenfreude. Originally, cast in Annie Get Your Gun was um, Dorothy, Liza Minnelli's mom. Judy Garland. Thank you. I've been I paused longer than I needed to there. <laughs> I've been drinking. What can I say? I would like to state for the record that Wendy and I both have really dark red lips just because <laughs> <laughs> we've been drinking a shitload of dark red wine. <laughs> anyway. Except for the part that I spilled on the keyboard of the computer, which is still somehow recording this podcast. I don't even understand that. Is it's it still amazing. Going? No, it's still going. Look, 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 look. Look. Oh, that's great. It's amazing. Okay. Side note. Annie, get your gun. The original lead cast in the movie was Judy Garland. Wow. And they even filmed several scenes with her and this was later in her life and she was clearly under the influence of of many things of a lot of things and so they have as dvd extras i should show them to you sometime when you come over (laughs) the dvd extras of just exactly how many drugs she was on it's kind of like watching carrie fisher outtakes of (gasps) return of the jedi Oh, holy shit. I need to see these. She's fucked up, man. Yeah. And it's it's kind of sad. And, and she has no Peter Mayhew to cling to. No, it's kind of sad, but at the same time, you're kind of like, oh, shit, she's mm-hmm. fucked up. And so you're kind of giggling, and then you feel like an asshole. Huh. So there are DVD, these deleted scenes, these not-used scenes of Judy Garland trying to perform these numbers. And then they call Cut. And she looks off camera vaguely and whatever ability she had to perform magically regardless of her state of mind and chemical composition. (laughs) The minute they call cut, it just drops away and she's like, what? And you're like, holy shit, that girl is fucked up. And they had to replace her. She was so out of it and so messed up that they had to pull her from the film and cast Betty Hutton, who is brilliant in the film. Mm -hmm. She's absolutely fantastic and very, very funny. 
And that is the story of Annie Get Your Gun, the last <laughs> Howard Keel film I saw. Here, I want to change this to see how many minutes we've recorded. I'm betting it's like 40 billion minutes. It's 38. 38. Yeah. It's 38. It's enough time for me to talk about Dan Heck, right? Exactly. <laughs> you decided to talk about? You got into the, the hotness <laughs> of our gill, and I figured it would be most entertaining for me to go into my formative years of lusting after Dan Aykroyd for no reason I can completely understand or explain. All right, so this is the Howard Keel and Dan Aykroyd podcast. Yes. <laughs> I don't even know how those go together. I don't know either, but I love it. I really love it. So I grew up, you know, Saturday Night Live started the year I was born. Oh, 1975. And for as long as I can remember until, you know, a few years ago when Saturday Night Live started sucking. Uh, Just a few years ago? Well, a little longer than that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, you know, my formative years, very formative, very childlike years... Every Saturday, my mom would let me stay up and watch Saturday Night Live. Oh, oh my God. I know. I remember the original players. Oh, my God. Like, Star Wars and the original Saturday Night Live players. I remember this. Did you see John Belushi and the Falling Lab? What was it called? The oh Falling Lab. Oh, Skylab. Skylab. Yeah. Did you see? I remember that? that. Do you remember the Skylab? Yes. That's how I got my news when I was three years old. Was Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Every Saturday night, my mom would let me stay up. I begged and begged and begged, and she would, you know, it wasn't a stick school night. <laughs> I wasn't in school yet, so she'd let me stay up. I'd Did she watch stuff. it with you? Yeah. Okay, that's slightly better. <laughs> I know. I didn't understand anything. Yeah. Really. But for some reason, yeah. I latched onto it, and I don't know, seven or eight years old, I I started watching the movies of Dan Aykroyd. You know, mm-hmm. after he got out of the prime time, not ready for prime time, prime time, prime, prime time layer. <laughs> keep not ready for prime time players. <laughs> Bravo, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> I I haven't drunk as much wine as you think because I spilled the rest of it on my keyboard. So when I started coming into the 10 years old or so, mm-hmm. 8 years old or so, 10 years old or so, Dan Aykroyd was making movies. Yeah. Yeah. He was making pretty good movies. Yeah. Well, like, you know, Blues Brothers being the king of them all. Trading Places. Trading Places, which is amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Blues Brothers. Blue, I already said Blues Brothers. Well, yeah, you said yeah. Blues Brothers, but I'm going yeah, back Blues to... Blues Brothers and Trading Places. And he and, is yeah, oddly back. sexy in that he, film. He really is. You know, that, that early 1980 to 1985, Dan Aykroyd. He's kind of cute. Suit, tie, hat, white shirt. But that clipped... Policeman sort of dialect. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of the bad boy and the 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 name of the law thing going on at the same time. Did you see him in Dragnet? Dragnet was fucking hot. The Virgin Connie Swales. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Do you know to ah, this I saw that in the theater. To this day, when I see a cop as I'm driving, I say 
I start chanting, "Hey there, copper, Mr. Crime Stopper." Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> With Tom Hanks. Yeah, there is a key. Six degrees of seven bacon. <laughs> Six degrees of seven bacon. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. There is a key film in any in any <laughs> connection is Dragnet. Tom Hanks to Dan Aykroyd. That's key. Make note, we're calling this episode the Six Degrees of Seven Bacon. <laughs> Did I say seven bacon? You said seven bacon. I meant Kevin Bacon. I know you did, but seven bacon is awesome. I want seven bacon. I love bacon. I want seven bacon. Seven. Seven. Bacon. <laughs> Six degrees of seven, seven bacon. bacon. So wait, how many degrees? Six or seven? <laughs> no, six degrees and seven bacon. Well, That's seven degrees of six bacon. <laughs> there was a time when Dan Aykroyd was fucking amazing. He had this... Oh, yeah. No argument. Fantastic career. You know, this clipped, wonderful comic delivery. And he was adorable. He was, yeah. He was quite a cutie pie. Tall, beautiful hands. <laughs> My thing is hands. Beautiful hands. Now you all know how to swoon, how to make Melissa swoon. Mm. Gesture. <laughs> mm -hmm. Beautiful hands. Yeah, okay, so good. then Ghostbusters came along. <laughs> it was great. How old were you? Well, Ghostbusters was 1984, wasn't it? Something like that. I saw it in the theater with my dad. I was nine years old. Nine years old. So you're not quite at puberty. So you had no. this sort of little girl crush. Kind of. When did you get that pubescent lust rush? Well, I will, I will note that I hit my full height at age nine. Really? I was five foot eight in eight, at age nine. I'm five foot tall and... I should say I hit my full height at age nine, but that's because I stopped growing. Yeah. No, they, while I was still growing, the doctors were going, oh, shit, she's going to be like six foot five. What the fuck? No, it, I, I topped out at 5'8 at age nine. What year were you born? 75. 75. Okay, yeah. so I'm looking at... So you're looking at Dan Aykroyd? Mm, looking at Dan... I'm 95 looking. movies. Holy shit. Yeah, he's done a He's a load. busy, busy boy. Very busy. I'm looking back. I want to see the film that happened when you were like 13. So if you were born in 75, that'd be 88? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, 88 would be about the uh, East of Eden years. Really? Yeah. And that's where it kind of started falling off. So I've got a kind of love-hate relationship with Dan Aykroyd at that point. <laughs> he was in North? I had no Oh, heard. North is a terrible, terrible film. I will not defend his later years. <laughs> he was in Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, he was. And he was fine in Driving Miss Daisy. My stepmother is an alien. That was kind of fun. She's having a baby. It was all right. And Couch Trip was kind of misguided. Dragnet. Dragnet, fucking hilarious. Okay, so in a dra weird Dragnet way. was 1987, you were 12. So yeah, that is goofy fucking weird, and I loved it. That is the sweet spot of your pubescence. Yes. Right there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Dan Eckert and Dragnet. <laughs> so this do is... You, do you... No, it probably doesn't explain anything about my lifestyle. <laughs> so wait a second. The, 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 the performance I imprinted on was Howard Keel in Kiss Me Kate. So we have a macho man strutting around in tights, 
singing with a lovely voice, acting macho, but really being tender on the inside. Let's face it, that's pretty accurate to what my life has turned out to be. I agree. Okay, not that my husband has long legs, he's kind of short, but still. But he's tall to you. He's tall to me. (laughs) (laughs) And the movie you imprinted on sexually was Dragnet. I know. (laughs) Well, between that and Corey Feldman, you know, that's what was happening at the time. I kind of grew up in a dearth of some sort. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. To my credit, I kind of realized pretty swiftly that Corey Feldman is like, oh, Oh. yeah, that's a broken human being. (laughs) No wonder you turned to horror to assuage your... About when I discovered Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, yeah. Uh Well, between that and when... Channel 9s in Minneapolis started running Hitchcock films. How old were you? Ooh, probably right around that time. Mm, 85 to 87, right in there. So you had this seminal pubescent moment with Dan Aykroyd in Dragnet. (laughs) Yes. And your brain rebelled literally in horror and you turned to Hitchcock to assuage your despair. Yes, probably. (laughs) This explains so much. Well, well, between Hitchcock and Stand By Me. <laughs> oh, oh I God. know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> oh, my God. This has turned into the Melissa Psychoanalysis episode. <laughs> I watched Stand By Me something like 90 times. Oh, dear. No, I know, I know. No. In my defense, I read the book first. The book is great. The book is great. And and the movie I, is great. And the movie is great. There is yeah. no absolutely no judgment on the movie. Yeah. But oh my god! Yeah, that that's something to imprint on. Right I there. how when did Stand by Me come out? Eighty seven. I want to say eighty seven. I'm going to double check that with the it's IMDb. It's right in there. I feel like IMDb should like sponsor our podcast. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> In, in 86. 86. Okay. I was off by a fucking year, okay? So you would have been 11. I would have been 11. And I would have been 16. Yeah. What I remember about Stand By Me is feeling really uncomfortably guilty and dirty for the fact that Phoenix, River Phoenix, was kind of hot, but he was a kid. See, I never I never got into River Phoenix. He was... He was very attractive, even yeah. as a as a young kid, and I was like, "Oh, ew, why am I thinking those thoughts?" I'm 16, and he's like, oh, eight. Gross. <laughs> so, stand by me. What was your reaction to that? Film? I think I I connected to Corey Feldman's character actually, so, rather than not necessarily the actor, but I connected to the character, and then therefore the actor. So, for me, the sort of Descending order of attractiveness is River Phoenix, Will Wheaton, Jerry, what's his name? Jerry. Jerry O'Connell. Jerry O'Connell. Who and became strangely hot in his later years. Yeah. I know. Oh. Yeah. Jerry O'Connell. If I had the pick of them all right now, Jerry O'Connell. I would put the fat kid above Corey Feldman in terms of attractiveness. Well, yeah, because that movie, Corey and, Feldman got fucking weird. Yeah, but even in that movie, and yet in that movie, you were drawn to Corey Feldman. Well, I was at the time, but it, because of the character, and I was I was struggling with issues of a stepfather who was 
I did not get along with. Yeah, yeah. We, no, will, we will say this generously. There is. I am. I am playing this for laughs. I understand that yeah. there are real issues. Yeah, there. that that was the character. That was the character. I will point out that I connected yeah. with, and therefore that was the actor I connected with. Sure. And then along came Lost Boys. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked Corey Feldman in Lost Boys. He, he was kind of perfect in Lost Boys because that, <laughs> that was, character needed that over-the-top sort of touch, and, and he had that at that time. That was it for him. Bing! I made yeah. it. I touched it, and I'm done. Yeah, in the 80s, I apparently had a thing for actors who had their height and then plunged into the depths of really terrible filmmaking. Oh, my God. You know, this... 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 <laughs> New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve. I have this ritual every New Year's Eve, probably for the last 10, 12 years. Okay. Kelvin, Hatley, and I get together and we watch terrible fucking movies together. Okay. And that's how I ring in the New Year, is I watch terrible fucking movies with my friend Kelvin. Where was Fest? Oh, he was here this time. Okay. This year, Kelvin brought the movie Nothing But Trouble. Oh. I know! Oh. I'd never seen it. Despite my weird obsession with Dan Aykroyd, I had never seen Nothing oh. But Trouble. Nothing But Trouble, a movie that was spawned completely out of Dan Aykroyd's mind. Ugh. Oh, God. Did you see Neighbors? Yes. At some point, yes, I did. But th this is worse. Neighbors was a watershed moment for me, and that is that is the first film that I got to the end of, and I wished to fucking Christ I'd walked out of. Mm -hmm. There have not been many films in that category, because normally, no matter how bad a film is, even by the end of it, I'll be like, ah, well, you know, there was this and this, and I enjoyed that moment, and that was horrible, and I never want to watch it again, but oh well. There have been like three to five films in my life that I've been like, I want my time back. You've stolen my life from me for two hours. <laughs> and one of those movies was Neighbors in my teen years. God, oh sweet Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and by the end of Nothing But Trouble, Fess was actually watching it with us. So Kelvin, Fess, and I were sitting in there watching the movie. And about... I don't know, 20 minutes from the end, Fess goes, Oh my God, his nose is a penis. <laughs> <laughs> and that wrapped up really a lot for me. <laughs> and closure. And closure. <laughs> yeah, once, once Dan Aykroyd started down that terrible movie slash crystal skull path, I was no longer invested. Oh. <sighs> So really, my formative years were like, oh, look at, oh, you oh, had, oh, oh. You had that with a lot of... <laughs> yeah, a lot of celebrities, so we kind of stopped oh, the oh, 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 my God, and yet I'm reminded you said his, his nose is a penis, and all I could think was Roxanne was Steve Martin. And... Well... Okay, and Steve oddly, Martin. Steve Martin. Steve Martin's Roxanne didn't have the cleft in the end of the nose. You know what did? 
<laughs> I can't believe we're having this conversation. Penis, 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 penis. We're having the penis conversation. Okay, second bottle of wine equals penis conversation. <laughs> Clearly, apparently. Hello, penis conversation. I don't watch a lot of porn. Not that I'm judging people who watch a lot of porn. <laughs> oh shit. I don't watch a lot of porn. I just don't. I'm a woman. I get more into erotica, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, one of the few porn that porn movies I have seen. One of the few porn. Porns. Porns. <laughs> There's no good way to say it. Porn. 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 Was Deep Throat 2? Anyway, the, I never saw Deep Throat. Uh, okay. But apparently in Deep Throat 2, the <laughs> sequel, they the devil sent her back to earth because she was in hell and she was having a lot of sex and the devil was unhappy about the fact that she was having a lot of sex because she was getting orgasms from having from giving blowjobs and the devil doesn't like people to have orgasms in hell i don't know but and so she went back to earth and then the devil was all like but you, I, you think the devil would be able to leverage this well the devil wanted to have sex and she gave him a great blowjob and then he followed her to earth and i don't know the it's a porn <laughs> the plot doesn't matter but what i mostly remember from this is that she gave a blowjob to cyrano de bergerac in hell but it wasn't to his penis it was to his nose which was shaped like a penis she sucked on cyrano de bergerac's nose in hell huh that looked like a penis that is what i remember <laughs> Huh. I I don't know where to take that. I feel I feel like I, I really killed don't. the end of this podcast with that story. <laughs> oh my god. Thank you for joining us on Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. Thank you for joining us in the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. Our theme song was written by Tim Wick and Jeffrey Brown and recorded and mastered by Chad Dutton. New episodes up every Thursday. You can find us at XanaduCinema.com and follow us on Twitter at at XanaduCinema. Or follow us on Facebook at Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. Gil, and then I took it into Dan Aykroyd land, and it just went downhill from and there. And suddenly we're talking about penises and porn. Well, his nose looked like a penis. <laughs> I want a cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>